Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Tommy is about to books. One, two, one, two, three, four. Sawbones. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. Sydney is a licensed medical doctor, and every week we take you on a, a tour through the annals of medical history to look at all the dumb, weird, hurtful ways that we've tried to help people uh, over the years. And although I am a medical doctor, as Justin pointed out, I am not using that degree in any way during the recording of this podcast. But my dad already told him that. That's true. They know. Now you just felt the need to point it out. I thought I would. Yeah. You know. I like, but I'm just proud. I'm just proud of you. I like to tell anybody who'll listen. That's sweet of you. Thank you. Do me a favor, Justin. T- tell me, Sydney, anything for you. Close your eyes. Okay. Are they closed? They're closed. Okay. I'd like to whisk you away, if I could. Okay. I'm ready to be whisked. To London. Oh, blimey. Oh, blimey. Clop, 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 clop. Excellent. Cobblestones. I, I was really Cobblestones hoping. Cobblestones for sale. I was really hoping you would do an accent. That was really where I was going with that. Oh, good blimey, Governor. Okay, okay, but it's 1935. It's 1935, Governor. That's, <laughs> that, that's what everybody said in 1935 I'm in London. I'm a gentleman of the time. And we're at the Second International Congress of Neurology. Gentlemen, gentlemen, quiet down. We're at the second thing for congresses of mediology. Neurology. Neurology. <laughs> gentlemen. Which was surely the swinginest party that happened in 1935. Pass me I'd have the to blow. guess. So, so you're sitting in what I have to imagine is kind of like a big, I don't know, like a big hotel conference room. Yeah. Really uncomfortable chairs. Like, really... Flat Tacky screens carpet. everywhere. Yeah. F- flat screens everywhere in 1935. <laughs> Just projecting the screens. <laughs> you're, all, you're all drinking from abnormally large goblets of water, eating the most flavorless roll you've ever eaten. Everything's in black and white. Everything's in black and white. <laughs> right. Uh, you're smoking, of course. It's 1935. Everybody's, Everybody's smoking. smoking. And two scientists step up on stage. Okay. Fulton and Jacobson. Now, do I know these guys? <clears throat> uh, no, you don't know him. Tell me about my character. Let's get back to me. What, <laughs> I'm like a scientist. I'm a doctor. You're a you're a neurologist. And plays by his own rules. You think? N- no, just a regular <laughs> neurologists only play by neurology rules, pretty much. <laughs> okay. They so you're at this congress because like everybody's really excited about the frontal lobe of the brain. Like I know, it's I all am. a buzz. Okay. Like, that's like the hot topic this year. You know, frontal lobes. The frontal lobes. Everybody wants to know like what do they do, man? Like what are they? 
what are they responsible for and what what how can we mess with them right i don't get it frontal lobes what's the sitch so you're excited you're on the edge of your seat at this neurology conference this does sound like me and uh fulton and jacobson walk up on stage and they start talking about some like primate experiments they've done with their two primate buddies lucy and becky and they're, they've been doing a series of experiments on them. And the main problem that they kept coming up against is that Becky can be kind of a bee when she gets mad. A little bit of hot under the collar. Exactly. So Becky, every once in a while, when they don't give her a reward during an experiment, like throws a tantrum like you do, gets mad, rolls around on the floor, poops everywhere. Sounds like me. Pretty much like you. Um so they weren't making a lot of progress in their experiments because Becky was causing so many problems. Becky. Becky. So they did, you know, a very rational thing. Which was? Well, they, Had it gave her a long talking to? Well, sort of. They actually cut the frontal lobe of her brain out. That uh, would not be my first choice. No, most of us probably wouldn't go to I'm that. I'm no scientist. But what they observed afterward is that she became very calm. And the way they described her is that it was like she, quote, joined a happiness cult. Well, that sounds promising. So basically, they presented these findings not really insinuating anything, just, um, you know, everybody's all excited about the frontal lobe, and they removed a frontal lobe, and they got this really angry primate to get really calm and docile. And they thought that was interesting and may give us some insight into what the frontal lobe does. Um, so they presented this. And the, the way the story goes is that there was a man in the audience named Antonio Igaz Moniz. Now, I don't know of him. Should I? Well, you don't yet, but you're going to know. This man stood up. And this, this story is probably apocryphal, but he stood up and he raised his hand and he, he asked the scientists the question, well, if it works on monkeys... Uh, could we not apply this to our, you know, to humans who also maybe have behavioral problems, you know, murderers or psychopaths? And the way the story goes is that the scientists scoffed at him and said, well, of course not. The human brain is much too complicated. But Dr. Moniz, he did not take this as the final answer. He had other plans. Much like all great thinkers, he was not going to be stopped by the the judgment of his peers absolutely not he would go on to become the father of the lobotomy no the the first man who later that year performed it sydney i want to know about lobotomies i I guess i hope i've come to the right place so lobotomies were originally called leucotomies just so you know so if you ever see that reference luke l-e-u-c as in like the root for white or clear so slicing into white matter or clear matter okay originally um, and it essentially, it's a procedure does otomy, where you... Does otomy mean um, cutting into or removing? Slicing or removing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so basically, it's cutting away parts of the brain. Uh, uh, we're mainly focusing on the frontal lobe when we talk about the procedure that's done for psychiatric purposes, or that was done. It was uh, really... It, it, the first official lobotomy, as we came to know it, was done in 1935, although there were... I'll tell you about some earlier attempts. And it was really popular throughout the 40s and 50s, um, pretty much stopped by the 70s and isn't really done today. When did it come into fashion? The idea of psychosurgery or, or doing some kind of procedure on the brain had been kind of kicked around for quite a while. Um, a Swiss physician, Burkhart, 
back in 1888 had attempted it and had um, he had come up with the theory that there were kind of three different parts of the brain. There was the part where we take in input, the part where we make associations about that input, and then the part where we um, perform functions like the motor area. Basically, he thought if you could remove the, the association part, you could cure mental illness. Um, and he was also one of the first ones to kind of see mental illness as an organic problem, a problem with brain chemistry that maybe could be fixed by altering the brain, which was an important thing to note. Uh, so he had six patients. He removed different parts of their brains. And according to his results that he published, uh, two got quieter. <laughs> yeah. Two were pretty much the same afterwards. Okay. One had seizures and died following the procedure. And he felt like one got better. Now, Sid, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm no scientist, but it does seem to me that this whole idea of three areas of the brain, that's that's wrong, right? Right. It's classically well, wrong. No, there aren't just three areas of their brain. There are many, many areas of the brain. Uh, he, it is true that there are general you know, parts of the brain that are responsible for different functions, you know, that you can play out, for instance, when you see a stroke, a stroke that happens in, you know, the left part of the brain that controls motor function will make you get weak on your right side. And, and we understand those kind of connections. But no, there aren't just three areas. It is true that there's, you know, input areas and processing areas and parts that control function. But but no, he so didn't have a right. So he comes out, he does six of these he says, hey, guys, great news. One person got better. And he claims a 50% success rate based on his results. Mm, yeah, not so debatable. much. Okay. Uh, but what was the reaction? Like, everybody was really excited about it? No, actually, people weren't excited. A couple other docs tried to follow in his footsteps. Uh, they failed, and everybody kind of thought he was a quack. It, it wasn't until this conference in London where you visited earlier... I remember it well. Uh, that people really began to consider the idea of psychosurgery. It was probably because of the context. We had entered the what uh, is known as the heroic period of medicine. Heroic? How do you mean? Well, for a long time, uh, people just kind of felt like they would fall victim to disease, that a lot of uh, illness was kind of beyond our control. You know, we're talking about an era before you know, the scientific method before antibiotics, before, you know, a lot of the ways to prove treatments and cures before we knew anything. Yeah. We, I mean, as we've covered in our previous episodes, we didn't know much. And uh, so we got into this period of time where people said, you know what? I'm tired of just sitting by and waiting for stuff to happen. I'm going to do something. I don't got know. to try. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm almost <laughs> certain it's not going to work. But it's better than sitting back and doing nothing. I'm not just going to keep chilling on my couch. I got to cut something open. Come here. <laughs> that was pretty much it. And, and a lot of the time, doctors were, you know, lauded for attempting things, even if they absolutely were killing people as a result. Just the fact that they were trying was... They gave it their their best shot. Yeah, they gave it their best shot. So, you know. What more, what more can we ask? <laughs> so, so in psychiatric medicine, as we go into the, the early 1900s, people began to, you know, psychiatrists who had become very frustrated, feeling like they weren't able to help their patients. They didn't have any tools. They didn't have any psychiatric medicines at this point. So we really didn't know what to do with people who, you know, had mental illness and we didn't know how to treat them. So they just began trying everything. You know, of course, lobotomies are what we're talking about, but you got to know that this was a time period where people were giving patients malaria to treat insanity. 
What? Giving patients malaria because they had mental illness. They thought the fever would cure them. Jesus. They put people in drug-induced comas for days to try to, they thought deep sleep therapy would fix them. They put people into insulin shock, gave them massive doses of insulin to put them into hypoglycemic comas. Um, they would do all kinds of seizure-inducing medications. This was also the invention of, uh, you know, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, but that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. Uh, so in addition to all this, they thought, well, you know, um, there are parts of if we if we look at people who have brain damage or seizures, we know there are parts of their brain that that you know aren't functioning correctly. Some of that they probably gathered from autopsies, right? I mean, uh, looking at parts of the brain and seeing where these clots were and stuff like that. Absolutely. And so they thought, well, it kind of makes sense that if we know there's part of the brain, if we believe that mental illness now is an organic problem, maybe we can remove the source. Um, and they had seen that removing the frontal lobes of animals caused changes, uh, and so they thought. Well, you know, maybe maybe we can do the same thing with with mental illness. Maybe we can remove parts of the brain and cure it. So Moniz and he, he really based it on the idea that it wasn't so much the cells, the brain cells that had gone wrong because we didn't understand neurotransmitters and serotonin and dopamine and all that. Well, we don't. We still don't for a lot of it. Right. I mean, a lot of the brain is still. Well, you don't. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> okay, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> but he thought it was the arrangement. So it kind of makes sense that distorting this arrangement would, you know, fix things. Like where you mean where the. I don't understand what you mean. Like uh, he thought, okay, so the you know the all tissues made up of cells, and we right. knew that at this point. So he thought the the brain cells weren't dysfunctional. It was kind of the patterns, the way that they were arranged next to each other, and the strings of them. Okay. So he thought, well, if we kind of cut them up, that'll fix the problem, or at least change the problem, or at least change the problem. So uh, he did his first surgeries in Lisbon. Um, he actually didn't perform them. Yeah. He, his fingers were so crippled with gout that he couldn't do it, so he had to have his assistant do it. Yeah. I've used that excuse before. Oh, man, my gout. I don't know. My gout, I want to cut some of this I, person's uh, brain out. My I, gout. Just I really like want to play this video game today, but I can't because my gout. I really? Got, I do that all the time. My gout's flaring up. Got gout, I just... <laughs> sure. So he initially he was injecting ethanol into the the long fibers that connect the frontal lobe to the rest of the brain ethanol alcohol mm -hmm. he would just inject it right in there etoh yep right. etoh that's good uh he did this uh, his first case he declared a complete success <laughs> said he cured her depression uh it is worth noting that she was never discharged from the psychiatric hospital where she spent the rest of her life but she was happy but she was cured <laughs> she's in a really good mood about it um, he started experimenting with instead of just injecting ethanol into the brain. And we're talking about, you remember our episode on trepanation. Right. So they would trepan into the, into the skull. They would drill a hole into the skull and then inject alcohol into the front part of the brain. Okay. Uh, then they, when that wasn't doing great, they drilled more holes into the skull and then took a um, leucotome, I believe is how it was pronounced, which is just a long... Uh, instrument with like a loop at the end and kind of cut holes throughout the frontal lobe. I mean, there ha I know people back then were idiots. It's not like today when even a, a, a common man like me 
understands pretty much everything about medicine. I mean, I know back then people were dumb, but they knew, I mean, like, they had to know to some extent that what they were doing, that they were that they were experimenting to a large extent. I mean, like, they were not going into each of these with, with first do no harm in in their minds, right? I mean, they were hoping uh, to maybe not do harm while they were in there, but, I mean, they, they had to know. It's a, it's tough. I, I agree with you. I don't think that you can go into a procedure like that with, with you know, first do no harm, primum non necerum on, on your mind. Um, I, again, that's why I, I, you got to think about it in the context. These were doctors who had nothing to help their patients, and they thought this would help, and they were willing to risk it. Now, to be fair, these patients weren't able, you know, these were people who were, at the time, so so mentally ill, they probably didn't consent or not consent. In a lot of the cases, it was the family saying, yeah, go ahead, do whatever. We don't know what to do with them. So, you know. I I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they were trying to do harm or that they were, you know, intentionally experimenting using patients as, you know, fodder for their research, but they certainly weren't thinking about the patients as uh, as we would today. You may not say it, but I'll say it. Suck it, old dead dudes. <laughs> you just got burnt. Welcome to Justin's Griddle. It's a new segment on Sawbones where I put some of you SOBs on notice. Watch out. The griddle's Justin, hot. Justin's coming to get you in 1935. The griddle's coming for you in 1935. And he, the thing is, too, he would publish his results. And I mean, even his results. He did this to about 20 people for everything. I mean, anxiety, depression, catatonia, mania, schizophrenia, whatever. And he said, well, about a third are completely cured. About a third are better, but not completely cured. And about a third are the same. It's pretty good. Now, it is it is worth noting that he published side effects of the procedure as being increased temperature, vomiting, bladder and bowel incontinence, diarrhea, ocular affections such as ptosis and nystagmus, as well as psychological effects such as apathy, akinesia, lethargy, timing and local disorientation, which means you don't know where or when you are, kleptomania, and abnormal I sensations got, of hunger. I miss some of my brain. I got to steal. <laughs> and I'm hungry. I'm hungry. In addition, it also left some people completely detached from humanity and void of any personality. Yeah, because the brain part. <laughs> um, he all he always said that these he, he, what he maintained is that these symptoms were temporary, that they would go away, and your patient would get better. And it certainly made the patients more docile. And this is probably why it was continued. Um, it continued to happen in psychiatric facilities. Because patients who were combative or violent were certainly not combative and violent afterwards. That's not to say that this was better, but they were easier to care for. Right. Which is a terrible, terrible reason. But there's there it is. And even though he was met with incredible criticism, he actually won the Nobel Prize for this in 1949. Ah, nice job, Nobel Prize. Now I'm putting you on the griddle. You're next. And, you know, the thing is, uh, it it's crazy because if you look at this period of time while he was doing this procedure and while, as I'm going to tell you, it really took off in America, other countries were not in agreement. Um, in in the USSR, it was banned in 1950 and, and essentially called a crime against humanity. Um, it was banned in Germany. It was banned in Japan. And this is when it was in its height in the U.S. 
there were many countries that just completely thought of it as a, as a terrible thing. And there are many people publishing this, but... At least there were dissenting voices. That's something, I guess. But when we're talking about the history of lobotomy, you really got to talk about the U.S. Because over the course of the 40s and 50s, uh, we did a total of about 40,000 lobotomies in the U.S., <sighs> Uh, throughout all all the of the years, you know, at the peak, we about 1951, we were doing thousands. Um, one physician was doing as many as 25 a day. Um, the the main doctor doing them in the U.S. was Walter Freeman. Um, he had his partner James Watts. Uh, they learned the technique from Moniz, brought it to the U.S., and then they perfected it in the way that many people probably uh, negatively associate with lobotomy today. Which is what? So. Freeman felt that it was unfair that this was a procedure that needed to be done in an operating room under anesthesia, you know, with technicians and sterile procedures and all that. Because the problem is that in a, in a state hospital, in a state mental facility, they didn't have all those resources. Right? So, right. So what was the solution? Well, the solution was to try to, instead of moving the patient to the hospital, let's move the procedure to the patient and make it something that you could do essentially in an outpatient setting. Meaning? Meaning that you don't need an operating room to do it. You don't have to put the patient to sleep. So, okay, what's... So, in order to do that, you can't drill into the brain. You have to find a way to get to the brain without drilling a hole in the skull. Oh, man. What did we do? So, Dr. Freeman went home one day, and he dug through his... You know that big utility drawer everybody's got in their kitchen? It's not where you keep your silverware. It's where you keep, like, your... My flashlight, my bar spoon. Your bottle opener. my My muddler. So he dug through his drawer, and what did he pull out? Tell me. An ice pick. He pulled out an ice pick. He went to the fridge, or the fruit basket. I don't know. Where do you where do you keep grapefruits? Ice, ice locker. <laughs> where do you keep grapefruits? Are they are the those counter. ones that do they ripen on the counter or do they ripen in the fridge? Uh, I think. I fresh. don't have a clever song about those like bananas. Uh, let's go to the fridge. <laughs> So he went to the fridge, he pulled out a grapefruit, and he started practicing the first transorbital lobotomy on a grapefruit with an ice pick in his kitchen. Where's that inspiring montage? <laughs> Once he felt he really... You got the touch! <laughs> <laughs> Just stabbing grapefruit after grapefruit. How, how exactly he decided he had perfected the procedure on the grapefruit... I got it. ...is beyond me. That was the one. But he, he felt like he could do it. He invented... Um, an orbitome, which is an ice, leucotome, which is an ice pick, which is an ice pick that you insert through the medial, which is the part of your eye that's next to your nose. You insert through that part of your eye, not through the eyeball itself, next to the eye. Uh, go up along the nasal bone until you're in the frontal lobe. Nope, I'm out. And then um, you kind of just swirl it around. There was a procedure for it where you made certain cuts. I mean, it wasn't just random, but if you were to watch it, it would look like a guy inserted an ice pick through the you know corner of this other guy's eye and then swirled it around in his brain and then repeated on the other side. Okay, so this is a weird question that I don't know the answer to, but you, I know you probably do. Um, is the brain like that squishy? <laughs> like, because you've gotten your hands on a brain before. Is it that squishy that it could be like, 
scrambled like that because it seems no. like it would be beefier to me. No, you're just making cuts in it essentially. Okay. If it's sharp, you're swiping through it and making cuts, which is what well the idea is that he's cutting through those same fibers that connect it to the rest of the brain. Now, who knows what you're actually doing? And and I mean, he would do this. You know, he, he you weren't doing this under anesthesia. Usually, you would give the patient some uh, electric shock shock therapy, which would you know make them unconscious for a while, and then hold them down and do this procedure. Ugh. He used to impress his students. He was ambidextrous and he used to like to impress people by doing both eyes at once. Guys, we have mistreated the mentally ill for so long in this country. Stuff like this just, I don't know, just turns my stomach. It, it, it's really horrifying because once he perfected his version of this procedure, he actually took his family on vacations all over the country. He liked to visit national parks and he would drag his family along with him and stop at every hospital on the way to perform lobotomies at the local hospital and teach the physicians there how to do it. So he just traveled the country cutting up people's frontal lobes. I mean, doing thousands of them. He's like a, sort of like Johnny Appleseed, kind of. Oh, yeah. It's a horrible Johnny Appleseed. Yeah, kind of like a crappy Johnny Appleseed. The worst Johnny Appleseed. But he, uh, the thing is, you have to know, not to not to completely curse Dr. Freeman, uh, God rest his soul, but he he did receive many, many thank you notes from the families of these patients, uh, the, the families and some patients actually that survived the procedure and could still talk afterwards said that they appreciated what he did for them. Um, now, the problem with that, again, he actually in defense once when he was being called to, to task for what he'd done, he went to one conference and dumped out a basket of 500 Christmas cards that he'd received over the years from various families <laughs> as evidence. I, I thought for a second you were going to tell me that <laughs> he dumped out Christmas cards he was going to send to all them. These were for you? <laughs> These were for you? <laughs> but now you don't deserve no, I'm them. Not, I, you don't, I won't even send you a Christmas <laughs> card. You don't believe in me? The the obviously the problem with this is that families and psychiatric facilities enjoyed this procedure because your loved one who previously was mentally ill and suffering from the you know the side effects of of that illness that was uncontrolled because we didn't have medication or anything um, would come home and and be kind of like a mannequin you know and wouldn't cause any more problems and as one physician criticized at the time I mean you know well then we may as well kill them if that's what we're trying to do is make them easier to care for it, you know we're taking away their lives we're taking away the who of what of of them so, so so sid what all would we use this for i mean what what was this a treatment for in the time any kind of mental illness could have been victim to lobotomy i mean anything you know anxiety depression um any kind of mood disorders bipolar disorder schizophrenia certainly but it was also used for mental retardation in some cases it was used for dementia uh, some patients were treated this way because they were homosexuals. So you're saying it's something of a cure-all. Yes. And what have we learned on Sawbones? If nothing else, we've learned that cure-alls cure, cure nothing. nothing. Yep. Absolutely. And and Once when it you was get to like three things that something fixes, that's when you need to just take a step back. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This doesn't seem right. That fixes a lot of things. And especially when you see a procedure that was done disproportionately on the the vulnerable, you know, members right. of society who were suffering from mental illness and were unable to, you know, kind of speak for themselves. If you look at some European countries, it was done largely on women, young children. Um, so, you know, members of society who can't stick up for themselves 
at the time. Uh, and, and again, you know, some patients would claim great success, which would spur it on for a while. Um, but finally, of course, the pressure against it was overwhelming. I mean, when we have, you know, the USSR and Germany and Japan and many other countries calling it inhumane, uh, finally, by the 70s, it tapered off um, and stopped being performed in the U.S., uh, so we don't have lobotomies today, right? There's not like some weird faction of no, doctors no. sticking by it. People certainly aren't doing uh, lobotomies um, for psychiatric disease like they used to. And a lot of this in the 1950s, the mid-1950s, we started to uh, you know, invent psychotropic medications, medications to cure, well, not to cure, but to treat, I should say, mental illness. And at that point, you know, this fell out of favor. Um, we do... Uh, certainly some lobectomies, I will say. You, it, is, it is not impossible to remove a part of the brain or to create a lesion, you know, some kind of kind of damage to a part of the brain to treat um, severe forms of epilepsy in some cases. Or I think a lot of people are familiar with some of the stuff we've done for like Parkinson's and stuff. Yeah, right. Um, but they're certainly different. These are very That's different what, procedures. Uh, Michael J. Fox had, mm-hmm. right? A Absolutely. small section of his brain removed? Well, uh, not removed. Or a, shunt or a stand or something. Oh, it's like a pacemaker, right? Like a brain pacemaker. He did have that. He did have that. Um, but there's also a treatment for Parkinson's where you can you create a lesion or you kind of damage a little part of the brain. Okay. In order to to treat certain diseases, but that again, this is all very different from the lobotomies that we're talking about. So this cat just keep to keep his Nobel Prize? Is he still? Yeah, uh, people have been calling for years to rescind it. Um, and it's never been done. They, you know, the I think the the position is that we stand by what we said at the time. But um, it's interesting. Some some famous people fell victim to this. JFK's sister Rosemary was lobotomized at the age of twenty three. Um, a lot of people theorize it was actually for mental retardation, but wow. nobody's really sure what it what it was for. Uh, Tennessee Williams had an older sister who had a lobotomy performed, and a lot of his writings were inspired by that that she went through and then uh one story that a lot of people like to quote is the inspiration for lobotomy have you ever heard of phineas gage uh yeah actually tell me about him he had a uh he had some kind of head injury right like guy got some sort of head head trauma and it uh-huh. changed his personality how'd you know about that it's on the screen <sighs> you're such a cheater so phineas gage back in 1848 was a railroad worker had a spike accidentally driven through the frontal lobe of his brain, completely survived the accident. No problems other than he underwent a drastic change in his personality. And a lot of people thought that this is where the original idea for lobotomy came from because he had his frontal lobe damaged and his personality changed, but he survived. Um, But that actually isn't true. There you have it. Another theory that it's been torn wide open by (laughs) Sawbones. Absolutely. Leave your misconceptions at the door. Um, it's a it's a really interesting history, um, and I think a lot of people, uh, you know, wonder where it ever came from. I, I I know for me, I my only interaction with it was I always think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it really was a time when uh, doctors thought it was better to do anything you could for a patient, even if it was going to harm them, than to do nothing. And um, not to m- mean that the doctors were blameless because they were they were targeting people who couldn't speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. And they were using them as guinea pigs. And uh, and I'm just glad we're not doing it now. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm, what I am glad we're doing is Sawbones every Friday. Uh, and we thank you for joining us uh, yet again for another uh, heartwarming 
<laughs> uh, brain separating episode. Boy, we need a happy one. Let's do like a fun one next time. We'll it, do a fun one next time. These past few have just been so 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 bummery. We we've used medicine. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not your fault. We've used medicine. Uh, you don't realize it how we used it sort of institutionally to keep people keep people down. The man uses it as another tool. Well, like, I like, think uh, like like bank loans. Well, I think it's it's been important as uh, we now hopefully physicians see themselves as um, partners with their patients. They're they're working together to so that the, the you know everybody can have a more quality life, and that we're not these kind of paternal figures that just know what's best for everybody and do whatever we can to you know fight death and disease all the time i think as medicine medicine shifts from that kind of viewpoint and more towards a place where we're we're all working together and we're just sharing what we know and what we've learned and trying to help out i don't know things get better that's all we're doing trying to help out we and if you'd like to help us out you can head over to itunes and give our show review gosh we sure appreciate that sydney reads uh literally everyone yeah, no exaggeration. Sydney reads everyone, and and it really does uh, mean the world to her. So yeah, thanks get, so much, guys. Yeah, if you get a chance to do that, um, just right now while you're listening, don't. There's no need to wait. Uh, we've got Ivy Warner, Sunwarm, E Rock, uh, H Pets, J six five four, Mackenzie H, Virgo Red Guy, Acid Tested, Google Man sixty four. Uh, Monster John seventy three, Brini three, Mu sixty. I think. I think that's Mu sixty because we got to go hurt at the end of that one. All right, Mu sixty. We'll go with that. And we are Marshall Signature Crop Circleman, Sportsman Nah, TG Delinda K, Jared Devonchip. I can't do that one. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who's. Uh, who's been reviewing the show and sharing it. And our very good friend, uh, Julie. Oh, yeah. JJ Cundiff there. Yeah. Who we For, grew up formerly with. Formerly knee Julie Hay. Julie Hay, yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, and thank you to everybody out there uh, who's been sharing the show and tweeting about it. You can uh, tweet about it with the at Sawbones uh, username. Just, you know, share the show, say I've been listening to this. And I love these cats. And uh, they're my best friends. And thanks for checking us out. Thank you so much, guys. We'll be here next Friday with another episode of Sawbones. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. As always, don't fill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.